Well, hello and welcome to Chapel Chat. Uh, this is a podcast that engages questions of how life meets faith, uh, both in our own faith community here at the church and our community at large. Uh, I'm Dieter Heinzel. I'm one of the pastors at Ladue Chapel Presbyterian Church in St. Louis, uh, Missouri, and I'm your host. You can find us uh, and find more Uh, about us on our website at ladoochapel.org, or you can follow us on Facebook or Instagram. And of course, we'd always love for you to join us for worship on Sunday morning, or you can also worship with us online on Facebook or on YouTube. Uh, I'm here today with one of our members, uh, Sarah Yancey, and uh, we want to continue our series uh, about people's personal faith journeys. And uh, I have known Sarah now for a long time. And um, she is a woman of deep, deep faith, uh, who was born and grew up in uh, West Virginia, Virginia, Virginia. Don't get that wrong. All right. Sorry about that. Uh, And (laughs) she's also a great conversation partner. So uh, I know that uh, she has a a wonderful story to tell. And uh, I'm just wondering, Sarah, how did how did you learn about your faith? Was it your mom that taught you, your grandmother, uh, yes. your pastors, all of the above? How, how all, all of the above, but principally, it really did start and continue throughout my life with my mother. Um, one of the things that my father never went to church, never. And, uh, and, and I never knew whether that was a conflict for them or not, but my mother always said, as your mother, I have responsibility for a number of things. I feed you, I clothe you, I provide shelter. And one of my responsibilities is to see that you are guided in your spiritual development. So she took that very seriously. To her, it was as important as putting food in my mouth, clothes on my back, and a roof over my head. And so it was non-negotiable as to whether we went to Sunday school and church on Sunday. Um, I, I don't actually remember having any pushback on that growing up, but I, I knew it was non-negotiable. So you were not a rebellious teenager who, who did not want to be... Well, you know, I, I can't say tr- that I wasn't a rebellious teenager. <laughs> there probably were areas in which I was rebellious. But uh, church was not one of them because I found a home there very quickly. So my, my faith journey began with my mother but it was very small. I grew up in the Shenandoah Valley, Virginia, and it was a very small congregation of about 100 to 150, but a vibrant congregation. And it, it was, a, if I remember correctly, a Presbyterian? Oh, Presbyterian. Congreg- I am Presbyterian through and through, and you'll hear that as we talk further. Um, I remember a librarian who, tiny, tiny little room, mm-hmm. but books from floor to ceiling in every corner, and she greeted me every single week by welcoming me in, pulling me into the library, and telling me which book she had picked especially for me. So she guided a lot of my growing up just by what she was putting in front of me to read. What a great, what a great story to have that kind of mentor. And well, how, how did that make you feel as a kid that... Here was an adult, I mean, other than your mom, uh-huh. who was apparently thinking about you all week and then thinking about the books well, that you might want that's, to read. that's a really good question. I don't think I thought about it at the time, but looking back on it, I knew that 
I had a place there. I had a home. And and uh, Jillian Gish was the was the reason for my home. Huh. And uh, and then that continued with youth advisors, who a couple, one of whom just passed away at the age of ninety nine, a couple of months ago, and they were instrumental in my growing up as well. So much so that over the years, as I returned to the Valley to see family, rarely, rarely was there ever a trip home that I did not also see Garner and Mae Francis Downey hmm. and, and kept in touch with them by phone and, and, and letter. They weren't doing email, but by letter and phone, even yeah. into the last years of their life. Well, what a great example, though, um, of the vows that the congregation takes when we Absolutely. baptize a child, you know, that we would nurture them and bring them up, and as we say, in, in, in the nurture and guidance of, right, of the Lord. Right. And so they really took that very seriously. That's and right. And even, even though we were small, we had, we had a very active youth group. And that youth group back in, in those decades ago, there were Presbytery Youth Councils, there were Synod Youth Councils. And I made my way in leadership roles to the Presbytery Youth Councils, to the Synod Youth Council. I Went to Massanetta Springs, which was a Bible conference ground. When I was in high school, I went to Montreat. I then worked at Massanetta Springs all through my college years. So I just was constantly surrounded by the church and by church people. Uh, ended up going to a small liberal arts Presbyterian school, which had a fascinating curriculum called Christianity and Culture where they declared to us, it was an inner, inner curriculum, interdisciplinary curriculum, and they declared to us the first week we were there as freshmen that they were going to tear apart hmm. everything we had been taught and what we believed. But over the course of four years, if we stuck with them, they would help us put it back together so that it was really our own. Yeah, that, and that sort of also, I think, is a classic Presbyterian way of of going about uh, educating people to mm -hmm. challenge, you know, the faith that you grew up with. And then, uh, you know, you end up really owning it by, by putting the pieces back together again in a way that makes sense to you. That's right. That's right. And that, and that introduced me to a broader concept of the world, because in our junior year, we were studying world religions, hmm. not just Christianity, but world religions and looking at things all over the world. And then in the summer between my uh, junior and senior year, I was selected from that college to represent St. Andrews in a consortium sponsored by American University, where we went to the Soviet Union and um, other Iron Curtain countries back in 1964. I'm telling my age now. but I was not going to ask. <laughs> <laughs> well, anybody wants to do the math can figure it out real quickly, and that's no secret. I'm not vain about that. Um, but that was quite an experience. Yeah. But through that summer, too, we were exploring deeply in all of those countries that we went to, what the church was doing there, Christianity, how it interacted with communism or did not. So that, was, uh, that took me in a whole different direction as well. So I'm, I'm not surprised to hear you say that because I, I, I've known you always uh, as being a mentor, uh, both to uh, students 
uh, on an intellectual basis, but also as a mentor in faith to to people. And so you're 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 living what your mom taught you, what your uh, librarian, Sunday school teachers taught you, and you are now have have for many many years. Um, uh, you know, paid that forward, carried that forward for for others, and uh, I, I'm thinking especially. I know you're very uh, involved with uh, AFS and have been for for many many years and international student exchanges. And um, a few years ago, you had uh, a Muslim student from oh, yes. from Pakistan uh-huh. uh, that you hosted in in your home, Fatima, and you're still in touch with her. And yes. So I think. Uh, that that interfaith connection that you made very early on is really uh, like a red thread throughout your your life in a way, it seems to me. Yeah, it has been. I mean, I had no idea back in that trip to the Soviet Union when I saw my first minaret, heard my first call to prayer. I, I actually had no idea what I was experiencing. I mean, nothing in our program was to be about Islam, but there I was in Tashkent, mm-hmm. Uzbekistan. Bukhara, Samarkand, that, that region of the Soviet Union at that time, experiencing these strange, strange sounds and sights and, and everything. Uh, but I look back on that now and, and realize that in some way that perhaps touched me in a formative way. Hmm. Very interesting. Well, I know you're still in contact with Fatima and you talk to her on a regular yes. basis. Yes, uh-huh. so v- very much so. It's also, I think it's a great testimony uh, for, for interfaith work, if you will, or relationships that, that it is possible for, for a Christian, mm-hmm. a deep, deeply devout Christian woman and a deeply devout Muslim woman to, to coexist uh, peacefully, respect each other, and, oh, absolutely. and learn, learn from one another. Yeah, so. I, I learned a great deal from her about Islam. I, you know, I, don't know, I don't know what I knew and what I didn't know, really, but from the experience with her, I came to understand that that Islam is deeply about peace loving and harmony and being kind and serving others and taking care of others and I don't think that's the first thing that comes to mind often when we it's think probably, about Muslims true. Yeah. Uh, but but I've come to believe from my experience with her and from meeting a number of other uh, Muslim people in the St. Louis area that I've gotten to know I, I've come to absolutely believe that that is at the heart of their beliefs. And, uh, and I've experienced great respect from them for what my belief system is. And I hope that I, they feel I've extended that to them. Yeah, no, I think that's, uh, that's probably true. It's also my experience with, mm-hmm. with the Muslim people that, that I have come to know over time. But uh, if, if I can shift the conversation. Sure. Uh, there's. Uh, I'm. I'm just curious. Uh, how how do you how do you practice your faith, Sarah? What what is most meaningful to you? How do you make that connection between you and God? Uh, is there is there anything that is more meaningful to you? Uh, any practice more meaningful to you than another? Or and if it's too personal a question, you don't. No. Um... Well, it won't come as any surprise to you to hear that hymns are important to me. Oh, I know. You've often joked with me about, gee, you didn't know all the words to that hymn because (laughs) there are probably, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say, maybe hundreds of hymns to which I know all the words of all the stanzas. 
Oh, I know you do. I always, <laughs> I always look at you on Sunday morning, and I'm thinking, does she know this? Have we have? I'm not sure we have done this before. I'm sure enough. You know, and and, and you know that all comes from the years in church, um, the years at Massonetta at Montreat, singing hymns all the time, all the time. I mean, one of my earliest recollections of my my grandfather, my mother's father, was in a, a Southside Virginia church where. In my childhood, the women still sat on one side and the men on the oh, wow. other. I mean, that sounds like centuries ago, but it was true when I was a little girl growing up. And I still have a visual of my grandfather singing. Hmm. I could look across the church, and he was a tall gentleman, but I could see him throw his head back and just sing his heart out as he was singing hymns. Huh. So my mother was church organist for more than 60 years. So I constantly heard the music and, mm-hmm. um, and, and now, now I find great peacefulness for me if I'm struggling with something to listen to hymns. Mm-hmm. Um, from time to time, I experience some issues with insomnia. And, and when I do, I mean, I have many tricks, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, but one of the ones that I often go to, particularly if I'm aware that I'm troubled by something, and it could be a whole variety of things. But if there's something really troubling me, there are certain hymns that I'll go to and and pull up on YouTube and start listening. And I would say probably without fail, maybe I should say almost, but it feels like really without fail, I will find a peacefulness that settles over me Mm -hmm. as I let the music sort of seep into my being. And then I'll find that I carry the words of particular hymns through my head over and over and over and over and over. And sometimes that even happens with a new hymn on Sunday morning. Mm -hmm. And and I love experiencing new hymns. There's some wonderful ones that I I have not known, but that I'm still discovering. I remember I, I used to sing in a choir way back when before my allergies really killed my vocal cords. But uh, I remember our choir director would always have us read the words before we would get to sing mm-hmm. the tunes. And I like the phrase that you used, it really seeps into my being. So from, from my own experience, when I, when I visit people sometimes, and I experience this with my mom as well, uh, who had uh, dementia, that she wouldn't remember anything, but she would remember the hymns mm-hmm. that she sang in church when she was a little girl. Mm-hmm. And she, she didn't have to, she couldn't see well, she didn't have to look at anything, she knew them all by heart. Mm-hmm. And it really is, sort of settles deep in, in your bones, mm-hmm. the music and the words together in a way that's much deeper than maybe just the words. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I've often said to, to Bob and to my children that if and when the time comes that I'm not able to express what I need uh, in the last days or weeks or months of my life, they need to be sure there's music. Hmm. Yeah, that makes, that makes good sense to me. Yeah. Well, it's just you, you, have, you have such a fascinating story. Uh, to tell. I, I also know, and I, I wonder, maybe as a last question, uh, I, I know that you grew up in the late 60s mm-hmm. and you know you experienced all, all the racial unrest in, in, in our country and whatnot, and you taught 
as a teacher, mm-hmm. I think your first assignment was to teach uh, as as a white woman and in an almost entirely black African-American school. Yes, yes. So I actually, wonder how your faith uh, informed you um, in that period of time. Well, I might flip that around and say how that experience informed my faith. Sure. Uh, I was in Alexandria, Virginia, just finishing a graduate program at the University of Virginia. And that was at a time when uh, the public schools there were being desegregated. They had still had a black high school and a white high school. And the very first year that I was to be teaching full-time after I'd finished my graduate program, I was offered a job there. And I was assigned to Parker Gray Middle School which had been the Parker Gray High School, but now they were, and it was in the area of Alexandria that had public housing, but they were busing the white students from other parts of the city to that middle school. There were going to be two middle schools, but many of them were going to be bused to that middle school, which was literally across the tracks. If you go to Alexandria now, it's across a metro line. Hmm. Um, and then uh, everyone was going to one high school, which is T.C. Williams. So if you know the movie uh, Home of the Titans. Yeah, sure. Okay, yes, T.C. Sure. Williams High uh-huh. School in Alexandria. Um, and on that faculty, I was one of three Caucasian teachers. They retained the black teachers who had been there, and they became my mentors. And I learned a great deal from them. And uh, they, they really took me under their wing. They were deeply spiritual people. They were men and women who cared deeply about their African-American students and wanting them to succeed. And the thing that they saw that most Caucasian teachers did was uh, create a double standard, making it easy for the black students and holding a higher standard for the white students. And they went, needs to be the same. They need to both be held accountable. And if you love our kids, if you care about our kids, you're going to work with them and you're going to make them work just as hard and get to the level as others will. So I will, I will always be grateful for that. And that was during the era where sensitivity groups were so popular in the workplace before your time. So I don't know if you've (laughs) ever experienced any of that or know anything about that, Uh, but they were the trendy thing to do in race relations at the time. And I participated in a number of professional sensitivity groups where my Black peers, my age, and older teachers as well, worked with us. And boy, they they didn't, they didn't let you off the hook with anything. So, if, if they sense the tiniest little thing, um, today, I guess we would call it um, white privilege. We would talk about it in those terms. Those weren't the words that were being mm-hmm. used then. But they would call you, they would point things out to you that you had never thought about and hold you accountable for that and make you kind of unpack that. So I think that shaped my... Um, I think that shaped my approach 
to working with students of color. And how, how did that impact your faith then? Because you said it, you would flip it around um, and say that the work really shaped your faith rather than your faith maybe. It might be a chicken or egg kind of question. Yeah, it is kind of a chicken or egg kind of thing. I think, um, I, I think it led me more to, to realize that God is a God of all people and, and there's no difference in God's eyes. I think I began to experience that there because I had come from a home um, where my father was quite elitist. Um, and it had nothing to do with color because in the Shenandoah Valley it was virtually pure white anyway. But he was elitist in the sense that if you had the wrong last name, then I, I, I was told to be friendly and respectful to everyone, but I was not permitted to associate with everyone by going to their homes. I could invite a classmate to my home, but I couldn't go to that classmate's home simply by virtue of the fact of their name being the wrong name hmm. in the societal structure. And I don't know why or how, but as a young child, even, I rebelled against that. I fought against that. I never won, at least not in the sense of winning with my father. But it was having an impact on me about um, they're not, that there should not be false barriers, whether it was skin color or name or ethnic background. Something took hold of me deep inside, even as a child. And sometimes I associate it with that attitude of my father, mm -hmm. which I really push strongly against. Uh, and he died too young for us to ever resolve that. Um, but then I had the experience at Parker Gray of that I'm experiencing it through color of skin. So I think there are a variety of ways that you encounter we're different. And yet, in God's eyes, we're all the same. Does that make sense? It makes total sense to me. Uh, I always, and it, I think it's maybe a great way to to end our conversation because I always thought if if God is the creator of all things, as we say, and of all people, then it makes no sense for us to discriminate. Correct. And and you know, parcel out. Well, you are in this corner. You're in this corner. You belong here. You belong mm -hmm. here. Because in God's eyes, creation is creation. It all belongs to God in the first mm -hmm. place. And so all people belong to God in the first place. And so what, what you felt as, as a child at home then, you sort of you know, got solidified mm -hmm. with your work uh, with, with the African-American school right. in, in D.C. So that, that makes right. total sense to me. And I wish, I wish uh, there were more of that going around today. Mm -hmm. as it seems like our world is fracturing more and more in, into different just compartments over here and there, and nobody talks to each other anymore. And so it's a good reminder that really, if God is the creator of all there is, then we owe each other the respect that, that we owe to God. Correct. I, I, I believe that deeply. We owe each other the respect, and we owe each other uh, the gift of time and listening to one another, even when we anticipate that we're not going to agree with anything. But I think you never know where a conversation is going to lead. And 
If you listen long enough, you may come to a point where you discover a commonality that you had absolutely not recognized before. Oh, amen to that, Sarah. Amen to that. Uh, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Yeah, thank you. I really it's been appreciate a nice it. opportunity. Yeah, it's a fascinating. It's always fascinating to learn more, and I learned more about you today that I didn't know before. So <laughs> I'm surprised. Yeah, no, it's always it's always great to talk. So so thanks so much for being with us. You're and, very uh, welcome. Thank, thank you. Thank you all for listening, and we will be with you next time. Until then, blessings. <laughs>